Portuguese and the, the locals all spoke Portuguese. So I had to learn how to speak Portuguese. Um, and I had to assimilate into the refugee camp life. It was in a semi-desert. It was horrible. I remember you had to build a tent um, in a semi-desert. And the, the water pump was so dangerous that people were just breaking bones, trying to work it. Uh, lions would, uh, would uh, occasionally stroll through the refugee camp in Mozambique. So it was just a really dangerous place. But people made it work, you know. People had, had no choice, so they, they stuck around there. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Your host for this week is Claire Mattis. Our guest for this week is Ephraim Bugumba, a musician and Congolese refugee. Ephraim is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, so before we get into the interview, we're going to give you a little bit of background on the country. In 2019, there were 800,000 new refugees from the DRC and over 5 million internally displaced persons, or IDPs. On top of that, another 2.1 million IDPs returned to their homes last year, but their long-term safety upon return is in question, according to the UNHCR and others monitoring the crisis. In total, there were almost 6.5 million people displaced from their homes as a result of the conflict in the DRC, either around the country or outside its borders. However, there are also over half a million refugees from other countries residing in the DRC, and the instability there also puts them at risk. The cause of the conflict in the DRC is long and complicated, but essentially, since the country gained independence from Belgium in 1960, it has been plagued with fighting and political instability. This conflict was intensified by Hutu fighters fleeing Rwanda into the DRC after their genocide of the Tutsi ethnic group in Rwanda in the 1990s. The introduction of the Hutu fighters into the DRC escalated the conflict in the DRC into a war. After this war, the Second Congo War broke out in 1998 and lasted until 2003, when government forces with outside support from other African nations fought rebels backed by Rwanda and Uganda. Since the end of the war, the nation has continued to be plagued by periodic bouts of violence, largely because of armed rebel groups that continually attack the Congolese people. The country also continues to deal with political instability and corruption. Additionally, large quantities of minerals and other resources in the Congo fuel further violence. Citizens of the DRC remain at risk of massive human rights violations and conflict because of these rebel groups and of corruption in the government. But on top of this, there has also been a massive Ebola outbreak in the country in the last two years. Now that you know a little bit about what's happening in the Congo, here's Claire's conversation with Ephraim. First, um, can you just tell us about your life living in the Congo? Um, I know you're really Mm -hmm. young, so maybe like what your parents described or anything like that. Yeah, so um, I left the Congo when I was three years old. I didn't get to see too. I don't remember a whole lot, but uh, from what my parents tell me, uh, my mother was in the church choir, and my father worked as a principal of a of a mute um, of a school that helped people that had uh, hearing and uh, verbal disabilities. Okay. Um, so then, my dad converted to Christianity because of his uh, half brother, and. Uh, after he converted, he joined the church choir. He became a he became a choir master over there. Then he courted my mom. Then my mom had to leave her church to come to his church, and they got married. And um, they had all of us. Well, I was I was the baby at the time, 
and then uh the war started the massacre took place in Makobola and we had to leave um my older brother we were at the time we were only uh let's see we were only six kids cuz uh my two older brothers passed at birth mm-hmm. uh, and then um my older brother the one that's right before me he went ahead with uh, my father's half brother to south africa and he so he got he didn't get to experience the the war the journey and all of that yeah but we would then get separated wait do you want me to get into all the details right now or do you just want to know of you yes i would actually love if you got into the details i um really just want to hear everything you have to say about the topic her right, cool, yeah. uh yeah so then i remember my my father particularly likes to make sure we don't forget um that on the day that the rebels actually invaded the village um my father and older brothers you know we knew how far they were when they were coming closer but we were kind of trapped because we were right by the lake so it's either you you get a boat over or you go into the wilderness where you might encounter them so they decided to wait a little bit and then once they were close by when you my father and my older brothers disguised themselves as women cuz um the the gamble was the rebels would either kill the man if you're too old for them to break you and put you in their army they'll just kill you the women well the women were brutalized and raped but a lot of the times the women had a better chance of surviving so my father and older brothers disguised themselves as women jumped out through the window and fled through the 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 forest and the goal was that whatever happened we were going to try to to meet in the refugee camp in Tanzania so my uh uncle right before he took my older brother it was either me or my older brother but I was too young to be without my mom um my older brother he was old enough to where he didn't have to be with my mom the whole time but he was also too young to run so he got to escape with my uncle and then um so we were separated from my dad for a while my dad and my two older brothers for a while and they had some crazy experiences in the wilderness there Uh um, my brother tells me that there was a time when they were hiding inside of a cave and then one of my older brothers the first born he woke up from a dream and he was like uh god just told me that we should move from this cave right now and head that direction my dad's like well you can't we can't go that direction because that's where the rebels are but it was like i just had a dream and i was told that we should go that way So they walk they woke up they packed their stuff and they started heading that direction so as soon as they they left they actually met with government soldiers and the government soldiers told them that they were very lucky because they saw movement in the cave and they were about to just toss grenades in there cuz they thought it was rebels so that was a near call for them then me and my mom and my sister my baby sister I was still nursing at the time. We continued on. I was also disguised as a baby girl like my mom wrapped me up and and all that funny stuff. And then we uh we continued journeying south to um my mom tells us that 
that we we saw some very 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 traumatizing things but we were too young to remember but she would tell us stories about her having to like go fetch water but getting to the river and it just being filled with dead bodies that are being carried by the current and she'd have to wait until the bodies were gone and wait a little longer and the water would clear up and she'd get that water because we didn't have any other water tells us that there were times when we had to drink railroad water like the mildew you know early in the morning like that's the water we would drink because we'd go off for days without any water it was it was some crazy stuff um and eventually we we did meet my father and my older brothers in the refugee camp in uh, Tanzania which is a blessing cuz it it was a rarity a lot of families just never met again you know uh some would go their own way some would perish which was the expectation that you wouldn't it was just an impossible journey yeah uh, a lot of families lost their loved ones you know i i know we had a few people that we met in the refugee camp who were just kids they were just kids that didn't have um I didn't have any family like everybody just died. I I managed to escape now I don't know where or who I am. Um and then once we were there the goal was in the refugee camp in Tanzania the goal was to make it to South Africa because that's where my older brother was and that's where my uncle was too so we knew we, we had a better chance going down there. Uh so we left the refugee camp in Tanzania and made our way south. and he was just walking if we managed to meet a cargo truck driver who was kind enough we would go inside and disguise ourselves as cargo and then just cover ourselves in the back so that when they crossed the borders all that the border patrol people saw was cargo and not us in the back there's also dangerous because a lot of human traffickers picked people up and sold them uh you know the harvested uh the vital organs for um traditional medication some were just cruel people you know serial killers that got a thrill off of that stuff yeah. and it was even worse for my family because we are of a royal lineage so the rebels were after the land and knew that my father was next for the chieftaincy uh so we were prime targets there was a we kept being followed even as we were going south if ever we get to a settlement and uh there were any people that knew who we were it already became an uncertain thing because there was also some tribalism you know and then they're like oh you're a bugumba oh man like bugumba from where and say makobola like you're the bugumba from makobola and then immediately you feel unsafe because you know we were we were being followed Mm-hmm. So and we we eventually made it to the refugee camp in Malawi where it was a whole new atmosphere you know we were a couple of countries over and uh you know the people there were very kind i know my name's sake the name person i was named after is from Malawi is a uh, is a chewa Ephraim Ephraim Omo um Mamseka i think I forgot his last name uh but he was from Malawi and um So we felt some sort of safety over there so we settled in the refugee camp in uh in Malawi I don't know if the refugee camp is still there and uh my father would then leave us behind so that he could um 
scout South Africa for us. Mm -hmm. So he left and for I think two years or so we didn't know where he was. He because we, we didn't have phones. The only way to get to him was through a letter that would take weeks or months to get to South Africa. Wow. So we didn't know where he was, you know, and a, a lot of people were saying he's just dead because the journey from Malawi to South Africa was a very dangerous one. You would walk through the forest for a couple of days, even weeks. Uh, you couldn't use the main roads because of border patrol. So you, you'd have to go through the forest. And the, the mortality rate was about 90% because you'd encounter wildlife, wild, wildlife, wildlife. Uh, you'd have people were being killed by lions. Uh, the Zambezi River is crocodile infested. So even if you got to Zimbabwe, where the Zambezi River is, you're you're most likely going to die because the only way to cross over to South Africa was through the Zambezi River, and the Zambezi River is crocodile infested, and nobody makes it across. Some people make it across, but most people don't. We were under the impression that he had just died. You know, I, I, I and my siblings were under the impression that our father was just dead. It was just my mom. And I think his memory started fading. And I just forgot what my dad looked like for a while. I, did, I didn't know. But I just heard we have a dad who went to South Africa. But I, I didn't know what he looked like, you know. I was, I was, what, um, what age were you at this point when your dad yeah. left? Yeah, at that point, I was about... Uh, four and a half going to five. Okay. So and then by the time I got to six years old, I had already forgotten, you know, what he looked like, yeah. what his personality was. My sister, who sort of was like my mom, because my mom had to, you know, take care of the baby who was still nursing. My baby sister was still nursing. So my, my older sister who was the second born had to, you know, she had to take care of me because I was also, I was the baby. I was I was a toddler at the time. I think that's what you call them, toddlers, right? Four year olds. Yes. I was a toddler, and she she was like my mom. And when when they left, when we were leaving, uh, my mom was more concerned about the baby running than they forgot me in the house uh, when the rebels came. So my sister ran back a, a few miles to get me, and she saved me. Oh. I would have been toast, but she saved me. So she was like, she would always. Uh, tried to remind me what he looked like. You know, my older brother, Jack, he looks a lot like my dad. So should, but he's, he's a little bit lighter in complexion. So she would say, just look at Jack, remove the hair from his head and add a few, sh a few darker shades of black on him. That's what dad looks like. That was the only picture I had of him. I didn't, I didn't know what he looked like. And then um, I remember we got a letter in the mail then everybody just started celebrating, you know, and the refugee camp was really, it was a community. And my mom was like singing and jumping. I was like, what's going on? And she said, we just got a letter from your dad. Apparently he had been arrested by the border patrol in, uh, in uh, Mozambique, but he recently got released and he made it to South Africa and uh, he sent some money so we can also follow him. But the money wasn't enough because we had six kids plus mom in a very dangerous journey. You had to pay coyotes to 
to help take you. But a lot of the times, some of the coyotes were human traffickers or just, again, serial killers. You know, they're not diagnosed as serial, uh, serial killers, but I'm pretty, pretty convinced that some of them are. Yeah. That just take a thrill in, in hurting human beings. So it was dangerous, but my mom has always been just a very, she believes, you know, she, she's a very strong faith, you know, that, that moves mountains, really. She believes that you believe you can change anything. So she was like, I, I believe we're going to make it to South Africa. She fasted and prayed and was like, I, I believe that God is telling me that we need to leave. So we sold every little thing that we had. She's always been a very, a very good entrepreneur. She always was able to just create tiny little businesses that would sustain us. So she sold whatever she could and we got on the road and started walking towards um, Mozambique first. Um, and when we got to the refugee camp in Mozambique, I have my memory, I remember that. It, it was a different kind of trauma. Um, I had to learn a whole new language. By the way, I had to learn a new language every time we moved, because you know every every let's say the equivalent of every town speaks a a different dialect. And then once you move over to what would be the equivalent of a state, it's a whole other language, a whole other culture. So you'd have to adapt or be uh, the 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 misfit, you know. Yeah. So we had to learn. I had to learn how to speak Portuguese because all the refugees spoke Portuguese and the the locals all spoke Portuguese. So I had to learn how to speak Portuguese. Um, and then I had to assimilate into the refugee camp life. It was in a semi desert. It was horrible. I remember you had to build a tent um, in a semi desert. And the the water pump was so dangerous that people were just breaking bones trying to work it. Uh, lions would uh, would uh, occasionally stroll through the refugee camp in Mozambique, so it was just a really dangerous place. But people made it work. You know, people had had no choice, so they they stuck around there. You know, a lot of people that just didn't know where to go. You know, we had a special kind of determination in my mom you know she's just a superwoman she just never gave up never no matter what she just never gave up uh, we were in it was an impossible situation a lot of people like i've been here 10 years I, I don't know what else to do my family is all gone i don't have any money to to go anywhere so i just stay here and leave off of the government i take all the crap that the locals give us it's just what it is my mom has always been determined so we, we left and made our journey to South Africa, which was it was kind of beautiful. You know, I remember the things I saw. Uh, we passed through a bunch of tobacco fields. It was a beautiful sight. I didn't know what tobacco was, so there was just these miles, like, and it was, it's, it's, it's a hilly kind of country where they have a lot of hills. And you stand on top of a hill and you just see miles of just leaves, like the before it's dried up and it turns brown, it's just this huge green plants and i was like this is beautiful my mom was like yeah now it's tobacco people die from smoking it and i was like oh okay never mind <laughs> <laughs> but i remember that and then it got it got real when night would come because we'd walk through the day and then when night would come that's when the lions will become active 
um, and all the other wild animals, the hyenas would all become active at night. So that was really dangerous. Um, and then once we left, once we, I remember the crossing from Zimbabwe to South Africa, we got to the Zambezi River, the infamous Zambezi River that is filled with crocodiles. And I remember the person that had to cross us from one side of the river to the other. He said, uh, before you go across, I just want you to know that there's a great chance that you won't survive. Great chance that I won't survive. Uh, and if you feel you're, you're not uh, up to take the risk, just it's okay. You can turn back or just figure something else or, you know, uh, gamble, go to the border and, and, and gamble and try to see if you can get through uh, otherwise crossing this river. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mom was like, we're crossing this river. And so we got in a tiny little canoe type boat with the few belongings that we had. The, the water was dark brown. You couldn't see under it, but you saw the water. And from a distance, you could kind of see some of the crocodiles. It, it was just about the length. The portion that we crossed that was about a length of like a highway, mm -hmm. but it felt a lot longer because you, you you know you're going like the current is pushing you down, then you see the crocodiles over there just hanging out, and the boat is really tiny to where any sudden movement could really just capsize the whole thing and it's it's bye bye. Yeah. So we we sail we went across and it was not our first rodeo with crazy water. Uh, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. When we left uh, to cross from, from Congo over to, um, over to Burundi before making it to Tanzania, we had, we had to get on a boat, which was crossing across the Tanganyika. And the Tanganyika is the biggest lake in Congo. And it's, it has turbulence. And the boat actually capsized and we were screwed. It didn't capsize. There was a hole in it. I remember now. There was a hole in it. My sister told me this. And the water just started shooting up. So it was just, it was yeah. about to capsize. And then the hippos were just hanging out around. And it, it was known that the hippos had a tendency to destroy boats and hurt the people. They don't eat the people. They'll just, they just had get a thrill from the violence, I guess. I don't know. Never looked into the science of that. Yeah, so my mom was like, we made it through that. This is nothing. It's just, it's a lot smaller than what we made through. I was like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. So we, we made it across by God's grace. And from there, we, we walked. And then I remember we got in a truck. And then we crossed the border into South Africa. And then we met my dad. Remember, we didn't even have a phone. We didn't know what part of, of, of town my dad lived in. We just got dropped off at a random place. We didn't have, I think we had a phone number, but no phone. Mm -hmm. So we called, we, we, the, the taxi driver in South Africa, they speak Zulu or English. Neither of us could speak Zulu or. So we were in this big city, big buildings. My mom, I've never seen my mom defeated. But at that, at that, at that instant, when she looked up, she saw this big city. She didn't know where to begin. She was like, we're screwed. There's, this is it. Like, we're, we're not going to make it. It's, it's just a concrete jungle here. And we, we were just, we're done for. But I think she had a number and some person passing by just called the number and it was my dad's number. And then he came and he picked us up. 
that was a relief, it was a sad relief. And then we stayed in South Africa. It was it was a struggle because we didn't have my dad didn't have real work. My mom was an entrepreneur, so she she found ways to try to you know create small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad struggled to find employment, even though he was he's very educated. He just educated in French and not English or Zulu. Mm-hmm. And um, the South African economy has always been shaky, so they always have. Uh, have a hard time with giving foreigners job opportunities. They struggled. It was a struggle. It was it was hard living in South Africa. But then uh, we started sending our case to to different embassies because we knew we couldn't survive there because we we started being followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the different Congolese communities were there, and it was the tribalism was there. It was like, oh, this guy's from Makobola. He's the chief prince of Makobola. And then they'll get word. And I remember my big brother got attacked one time and was almost killed. So then we we took the case to the we took a case to England. We took it to Australia and Canada, and we got rejected by all those three countries. And uh, America was just a shot in the dark because America is not known for bringing in war refugees. A lot of the times, it's. Uh, refugees from like uh, Somalia or the Middle East not oh not 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 refugees from Congo we, we we didn't hear a lot about that happening so it was our last resort we're like we're not going to be able to survive here because it's not like we can just pack and leave like if we pack and leave where are we going to go you know yeah so we we took the pictures of my brother's attack you know and we we sent in we sent it into the U.S. Embassy and just told them our story and, and, and begged for help. And then, by God's grace, they called us. And I remember just being in shocked, being shocked, because we, gotten, we had gotten so used to the no, you know, and my dad was just always really defeated after the no's because it was like we, he didn't know what else to do, you know. He has a family of seven kids at this point and a wife to take care of in this concrete jungle without without any help from anybody. That was really hard. And it was we were kind of started bracing ourselves for no's. But then we got a yes, and it was just what? Potential yes. It wasn't an automatic. We had to go through six interviews, interviews. Um, a series of interviews and some physicals and uh, we had a bunch of injections. Still don't know why they injected us so many times. But we had a bunch of injections. Uh, and then eventually we had to learn the Pledge of Allegiance. And then they were like, okay, you're leaving on the 18th of April, 2012. And I was like, what? It's happening. Like We're, we're leaving. It's going to be okay. And it was just like an overwhelming joy. But at this point, I had sort of gotten numb to a lot of overwhelming emotion. Uh, I'd gotten numb to um, excitement. I wasn't very excited. Uh, I got numb to sorrow. Yeah. You know, I lost I lost a few friends in South Africa. And on the journey too, I, I was just numb to all of that. So because, you know, the, the life that we lived as, as uh, nomads, 
just taught you that you if you needed something you'd cry and no one will be there to really provide it so you kind of just get over it so I, i just got numb there was no excitement or anything it was just okay it's happening finally but not any real joy because i had become numb to that and this is something I, i would come to learn a few years once we got here like five years later i realized i i had that trauma response mm-hmm. um Yes, and then we moved to the USA in 2012. My entire family, uh, we, we settled in Mobile, Alabama, which was a little strange because we did. It was like we spoke English, but couldn't understand what everyone was saying, and people couldn't understand us and didn't make sense. Like we speak English, but that's because of the thick accents down there. And um, we stayed there, and but then there was like uh, there was a, an African community that was building there. which is good you know to be around people sort of with the same background but my dad was anti the whole idea of comfort he said if we get too comfortable here we won't grow and we're here the world is yours now and staying in the south is just going to keep you comfortable the, the, the refugees who had resettled in Mobile Alabama a lot of them came straight from refugee camps to the USA so that that grown a sense of dependence you know a lot of them were born in the refugee camps where you're in the refugee camp because you can't simulate into the into the country uh because you won't get a job and you won't you you just yeah you you get used to getting government support so a lot of them just got used to to getting help from the government and not really growing and becoming anything I remember I remember one time in high school I played varsity soccer my sophomore year. I didn't know that was a that was a thing. I just thought you you got there and you played soccer because you knew how to play or because you liked it. But apparently a lot of people loved it. And then there was a kid, he was really good. He was really good. It was really strong, really fast, you know. He could take three people on because he could just stand his ground. But he was lazy. and he always got really angry when uh whenever things just didn't go his way and I got mad at him and I yelled at him one day I was like yo what you you need to work harder man you have what it takes to to make it into cuz the goal was to play college soccer and I was like dude you can you can play college soccer if you work harder he looked at me he smiled and he said don't forget that you're African you frame no matter what you do you're always going to be African and I didn't get it you know I was I was upset because he refused to listen to me and work hard but at the same time i was i was confused like what does he mean i'm african then i began to see i began to like journey into his mind and into his world and what he meant you know seeing the world where we were at and it seemed like he somewhat had a point you know i was for i was perceived as the african you know people were were nice to me but but just so that they feel good for, about themselves you know they're being nice to the poor african kid yeah. uh i was never actually anyone's friend i was cool with everyone i mean the entire school was cool with me you know i played a little bit of football as kicker you know and they were all really cool with me you know joked about my accent but i was never anyone's friend like no one really knew me no one ever tried to know me i mean i would walk through the hallway and everyone's like hey what's up e what's up e um but no one ever really cared to know me. I never got in trouble. 
you know, I, I never got in trouble. I always got away from it. I, there was a time when I just walked out of class because I wasn't feeling well. And the principal walked by and he just said, hey, and he just kept walking. And I was like, why am I not in trouble? I'm, I'm skipping class. You're not even asking why. And then I realized I was, there was just that dynamic. I was just an African kid and they, they wanted to be nice to me, you know, because they had expectation that whatever it was, I'd been through worse. And I was like, okay, I get it. I am African, but I'm also a person, you know. Yeah. You can be nice to me, but also know me. Then I also looked into his world. His entire family was born and raised in refugee camps. When they got to the States, it was just dependence on the government. They wouldn't graduate high school. I mean, if they did graduate high school, it wasn't to go to college. It would be to graduate high school so that they can get a job you know, a dead end job, make a little bit of money, get a family, get on social, you know, social benefits, which is a great thing. You know, it helps them. It helps a lot of people. It helped us for a while. But then that was it. There was no bigger picture. There was no bigger dream. It just stopped there. So then that's, that's where his mind was, was that I'm here. Everyone will be cool with me, but I'm an African. It's all I'm going to ever be. I'm a refugee. This is all I'm ever going to be. And my dad saw into that culture mm-hmm. and he said, I don't have anything against our people. I love them, but I need you guys to dream a bit, a bit more. Like me and your mom have sacrificed. You know, we've worked really hard and God has done his thing. And I think you guys can be more than just refugees. Mm-hmm. And then we, we, he pushed us out of Alabama. And I remember we didn't know where to go. I mean, we, we didn't have any family. We don't have any you know, legitimate family in the States. But the goal was to go to Atlanta, to move to Atlanta. So my uh, older siblings and my mom went or rented an Airbnb in Atlanta. And then, you know, just stayed there for like a week, just checking it out. And they were like, no, Atlanta is too close to the South. Uh, let's look further up north. Um, then um, they came to Chicago, which was unheard of. Everybody was begging them to not come to Illinois. It was, you will never make it there. It's really expensive. Blah, 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 blah. But my dad was determined. He said, if it's expensive, you, you're going you're gonna to have to work harder then, right? In order to be able to live a better life. So my three siblings, three older siblings moved moved up here then in a matter of few months got jobs in a matter of another few months got an apartment then my mom's and younger sisters took a u-haul i had just got my driver's license i didn't even have my driver's license i had my permit and i drove from alabama to Illinois. that was crazy i could have, could have even crashed i didn't even know how to drive very well but yeah we moved up here then uh I guess my my journey, my musical journey started then because it was like, okay, father wants us to dream. And, you know, music is what brings me solace. You know, it's it's the only certain thing I've had in my life at that point. Because no matter what was going on, my family would always turn to singing, you know, and we'd always gather at night if we had the chance, you know, pray, uh, read uh, psalm. Mom loves psalms a lot. Then we would uh, sing hymns 
And that was like something I knew was going to happen. And I knew it was something that would make me feel good. So I was, when it was time for me to pick a journey, it was music. Then I I started pursuing it. And uh, yeah, here we are. That is very powerful. Thank you for sharing all that with me. Um, Thank you for listening. Really inspiring story. That's just amazing. Um, I guess I just have some questions about your music now. Um, yeah. All the questions sure. I had about your journey here. Um, so just, so growing up, like immersed in all those different cultures, how did that shape your music style? Because I know you said you learned different languages and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, every, every, almost every other city has a, a different uh, music scene to it. And uh, I was always drawn to the different cultures and the different sounds. So I found myself just being inspired by all these different things. I became a mixture of all of these different sounds, you know, like uh, the people in uh, in Malawi, they have that, the Chewa sound, which is that type. It's almost like a house type sound, but a lot of their dances have to do with their backs. Like they almost like break that back type type thing. So that's their music. They listen to, they do a lot of reggae music. I remember my first like musical experience, like circular music experience was by uh, an Elias Matafare. He was a political Rastafarian uh, musician and his music was really powerful. He got killed eventually because he called the government out on some of that craziness. But his music was very, very inspiring. So it was the first and he had like a reggae um, Chewa, traditional Chewa sound. And in South Africa, there was the Brenda Fassies, the Ringo, the, you know, the Oliver Mtukuzi from Zimbabwe. And they all had all these different unique sounds. And of course, in America, I got introduced to hip hop. I used to be a hip hop dancer in South Africa. So that too, and R&B, and then rock and roll. I got introduced to rock and roll. I was introduced to emo, actually. Uh, Welcome to the Black Parade. That was the first emo song I ever heard. And I was like, whoa, I, I kind of like this. And then being in Alabama, I listened to some folk, fell in love with that. And then I, I found out about Phil Wickham. And I was really inspired. You know who Phil Wickham is, right? I think so. He's a really good, he's a gospel musician. Okay. But before, yeah, before he went mainstream, mainstream gospel music, he wrote some very entrancing, you know, just really style, really beautiful music. Um, found out about him and I found out about a bunch of other artists and I was just inspired by all of these other different sounds. Wow, that is that is awesome. Um, I was listening to one of your songs earlier and I heard um, when you were describing that beat that you're talking about and um, yeah. I noticed that. That's a really yeah. cool um, style of music. Thank um, you. Do you think you could just tell us about the meaning behind like your song storms um that's the one i've listened to the most and i really yes awesome yes uh, storms is the is uh storms is the the only other song i have out right now uh and and storms is really just about you know doubts that i had because i wrote it around halloween Mm -hmm. um last is it last year year before last it was last year i was in new york i was on a mini tour and uh, on that tour, I, I, that was like the end. I was going to be in New York and uh, New Jersey. And um, before that, during that time, I was working as a, as a factory worker. 
And on the Friday, I was supposed to on the I was supposed to leave on a Saturday. On the Friday that I was supposed to leave, I hurt my knee at work. Oh, wow. I, it was really, really bad. It was really painful. So I had I had to make a choice. I'd already, uh, but then I had this really good feeling about the journey. I thought it was gonna I thought it was gonna be it. You know, I was like, this is it. But nothing happened. I just ended up uh, performing my last show. And then flying back home, and I was really disappointed. And I just started thinking about the entire journey, you know, and about how I, I made top fifty on American Idol, but didn't get any airtime. How, uh, you know, I was writing all these songs that it seemed like no one was ever going to hear. I started doubting myself. I was like, am I really meant for this? But I had no choice, you know. I, I, this is all I know, you know. This is what what is real to me. This is what makes sense to me. Everything else is just, it doesn't make sense. You know, politics, uh, business, it's all just greedy, greediness, you know, but music is pure. It's emotion. It's, it's, it's solace. I was like, I'm not going to quit. I can't quit. This is, this is the truth for me. You know, this is my religion. And, um, as I was walking through the tunnel, I, I, a melody just kind of popped up in my head and it was like, da, 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 da. wait, no, it was da, 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 da. I was like, oh, that sounds nice. So I pulled out my voice memo app and I recorded it. And I was like, all right, that nice melody. I guess it was worth it. I got a cool melody. And then I was at, I got home. Then my wife now, my girlfriend back then, and I were just hanging out. Uh, I think we were watching a TV show. Then a melody pops up in my head. Da, 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 da. That's the verse now. So I record that too. Then my my homeboy, uh, Obi, who's my producer now, he hits me up. He's like, bro, send me something. I, I'm, I need something, you know? I was like, bro, I've sent you like, like hundreds of songs that, that, that I write, you know? But why do you need something? He was like, just send me something, like a voice recording or anything. So I'm driving to work and I'm like, okay. So I pull out my voice recording app and I put the two melodies together and yeah. I send it to him. And I'm like, okay, I'll write something to this, but this is what I have so far. So he goes and he creates whatever he could. Then I start writing and really the song is just talking about, you know, how the, the, the tour went and how like, you know, the first line is sun don't shine in Chinatown. It's been storming for a while now. Mm. It was because when I was in, uh, I went to San Francisco and I was like, I'm in LA, I'm in San Francisco and it's going to be great. I'm going to make it. Someone will find me and discover me here. But it was nothing. You know, I just performed. And then I went and walked down Chinatown with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now. You know, we just walked through Chinatown and nothing happened, you know. I, I didn't get discovered. So it was like, Sun doesn't really shine in Chinatown. You don't just get discovered in San Francisco or in LA. It's it's actually been rainy for a while now. It's been dry in my life. I don't I haven't received any real success in music, you know, any tangible. Uh, and then the, the line after that is that I might be here out of season, but the truth is I've lost track of time, you know. I might be here at the wrong time, but what is time, you know? So it's just a reflection on that, just a reflection on the journey and how I felt discouraged, but was compelled to keep going. That is awesome. That's a really moving song. I Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I just have really like 
one more question. Um, so I read in an article about you um, that you're a music teacher. Is that right? Yes. Or, yes. Okay. I'm a music instructor. Music instructor. Right. Okay. Um, so how has your experience like teaching music um, as well as producing it impacted you just, you know, teaching kids and seeing what they, what they're like when they learn about music? Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. You know, I, uh, I teach in a predominantly white neighborhood, like 90%, 99.9% white. I don't even live in that neighborhood. Uh, so at first it was a challenge because I, I, I went under the impression that I might not be easily likable for obvious reasons. Then I had to, I had to learn that, uh, I can't go in there with an expectation. I have to go there and just teach, you know, and let the music speak for itself. And that gave me a bit more solace, a bit more peace in teaching it. But then, and then it, it grew to me realizing how the, the magic behind music even more, you know, seeing I teach from four years to 72 years old. Mm -hmm. And being able to teach a little kid how to sing Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, and they actually get it and they go home and they just keep singing it to their parents and they come back and they're this newfound love is just it's exciting you know it's it's fulfilling i come back home from work feeling like i've made a difference you know that feeling that music gave me that that music gives me i've given to someone else you know be it that they're four years old or 72 years old like one of my students uh dave He's like, I've been taking music for 20 something years and no one's ever told me what you're telling me right now, but it's making a difference because I teach them the music the way I learned it. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot deeper than just la, 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 la. Yeah. It's very fulfilling. I don't know if that answers your question. I tend to rumble. I, no, once I start it. talking, I can't stop. No, that was very interesting. I, I'm so glad you're giving me all the, all these details. Know which questions to ask. This is great. Thank you. Um, and I just do have one more question. Um, and if you don't have an answer, it's fine. It's kind of just theoretical. Um, yeah. But what comes to mind when you think of children living in refugee camps right now? Like, what advice would you give them? That it gets better. That it's it's a journey. You know, I I don't want to be I don't want to be toxic. I don't want to have toxic positivity and tell them that it's just them getting ready for the future. Mm -hmm. But really, it is. You know, whatever, whatever happens in life doesn't just happen. You know, it's all for a purpose and it's okay to not feel okay about it, you know, but you, you just got to keep breathing. That's, that's, the thing. That, that's what you have control over is just as long as you keep that, you know, you keep that, that truth in yourself, you'll be fine eventually. Yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, that's all the questions I have for you. Um, was there anything you'd like cool. to add that you'd like viewers to know? Or, uh, Yeah, I'll start releasing more music in, well, I guess you can know. I'll start releasing more music in January. And uh, good things, good things are coming in the near future. That was Claire speaking with Ephraim Bagumba, a Congolese refugee who is a musician and music teacher be sure to check out his music on Spotify. And Ephraim is also TikTok famous, so be sure to check out his videos featuring his music and his story. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. 
Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making our show possible. This week, we're going to play you out with a sneak peek of Ephraim's song, Storms. Be sure to go like it and his other single, Class Clown, on Spotify. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Storming for a while now. Mm. I might be here at the season, but truth be told, I've lost track of time. Nirvana's too far from home, but I came with my bird dance Tell me I was bold enough to turn back. Wishing we were strong enough to let go But this is who we are, this is where we stand Stuck in the middle, lost in the middle 